guy is bragging to his friend that he has a dog who is so talented that he can follow any command. So the friend says, okay, I'll try something simple, simple command. First, picks up a stick, he throws it, turns to the dog, and he says, fetch. Dog doesn't move. In fact, he looks up at the guy and he starts shouting, fetch this, roll over, sit down, eat this, don't eat this. I can't stand being a dog anymore. I'm always being yelled at. I'm always being told what to do. The guy says, I just said fetch. Dog looks up and says, oh, I thought you said fetch. <laughs> that pretty much captures the last six months for all of us, doesn't it? I don't have to tell you what it's been like because we have all lived it alone together. And that perhaps is the most striking aspect of these past months for me, this being alone together part, keeping physical distance from each other while we have strived to create as many creative and innovative ways of staying socially connected as we possibly can, like this very service that you're experiencing. I should have invested in Zoom, says everyone I know. What I've been reminded of throughout this whole pandemic is what we've always known but so often forget, just how desperately we need each other. How much we long, really in the very marrow of our bones, to touch each other, to hug, to hold each other. And how spiritually impoverished I feel to be so physically disconnected from everyone. It reminded me of one of the famous comments of Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, we may have all come on different ships but we're in the same boat now. Unfortunately for many of us, that boat that we are all in mostly resembles the best-selling novel, The Life of Pi, where that young boy is stuck floating across a hostile sea in a 26-foot-long lifeboat with a tiger. Just imagine the emotional toll that's being taken on every one of us to have in the very back of our minds all the time every single day, that wherever we go, whoever we see, whoever we might encounter, every single other human being on earth is suddenly a potential threat to our very lives. And as a nation, we don't seem to be coping with the fundamental insecurity of it all very well at all. Suicide rates were already up nearly 30% since the year 2000, and the same time prescriptions for antidepressants had risen 65%, and that was before the pandemic. Since the pandemic, the CDC reports an even more dramatic rise in suicides and suicidal impulses, and sadly, with the most dramatic rise among those aged 18 to 25. Terrifying. In fact, international health organizations are predicting that by the end of the year, there may be as many as 850,000 suicides worldwide. One small example I read, the city of Fresno, suicides have been up 70%. And we now have a suicide rate at the highest level since World War II, with prescriptions for antidepressants having risen 34% in the last six months alone. Last year, when the news about Anthony Bourdain killing himself followed immediately after that of Kate Spade killing herself, one of the teenagers in one of my Home Shalom workshops on creating healthy relationships 
pretty much nailed it when he said, there are so many suicides, these people need a friend. That teenager was echoing the wisdom of the Talmud of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Parachia, whose simplest formula for well-being was, get a teacher and find a friend. Well, since more people than ever are getting prescriptions to help them feel better, I decided first to tell a story and then I'll give you my own five-point prescription for how to successfully manage the challenging times that we are all in. First, the story. I've been crying a lot this past year. That's pretty much the story. Exactly a year ago, the day of Kol Nidre last year, I was sitting in the imaging center at the Cancer Institute at St. John's Hospital getting a bone scan after my own biopsy revealed that I had prostate cancer to see if it had spread to other parts of my body. And as can happen when one is a rabbi, at that exact same moment I was on the phone to a KI congregant, helping her wrestle with the difficult end-of-life decisions that had to be made that very day regarding her husband who was dying in Santa Monica Hospital just a few blocks away. Gratefully, my own bone scan came back negative, so it's only been the prostate cancer I've been living with this year. But even so, that high holiday theme that we keep repeating over and over again, who will live and who will die, has been on my mind ever since, and tears keep appearing whether I summon them or not. It reminded me of a Jewish man from the United States who was on his first trip to Australia during this season. He got into a cab, and out of the blue, the driver asked him, did you come here to die? The man was stunned by the question and immediately began thinking about these high holiday themes and the questions of life's meaning in the midst of never knowing what day may be our last. What made you say that? He asked the driver, who turned around and said, well, did you come here to die? Oh, yes, to die. Really, aren't we all longing for yesterday? Actually, there's clearly a reason why the song Yesterday is the most covered pop song of all time. Oh, I believe in yesterday. And in keeping with the theme of how fragile our lives feel at this very moment in time, yesterday, literally, actually yesterday, September 27th, was my mother Betty Rubin's 98th birthday. And I know she's watching from home in Sacramento, so happy birthday again, Mom. Actually, most of the important lessons I learned in my life, I learned from my mother. If she'd been born in a different time, she would have been like Rabbi Amy. She would have been a rabbi herself, for sure, and she was always the rabbi in our family. She taught me by living example every single day what it means to be a mensch, how to treat every other human being with dignity and respect, and that my purpose in life was to find my purpose in life and to make my life matter in the lives of others. She taught me to be engaged in the political process as well. She took me walking precincts as a young child to get out the vote, and that voting itself was both a privilege and a right never to be squandered. She taught me to fight for the underdog and to stand up for those most vulnerable in our society. I recall as a child many nights when, as president of Jewish Family Service in Santa Monica, the phone would ring 
and she would drive downtown to give money to an indigent who was in need of support or a place to stay overnight or some food to eat. And she taught me the value of education as she went back to college herself when my youngest sister was graduating high school and she earned a master's degree in early childhood education and not only ran a preschool with outreach to the most vulnerable children and families in Sacramento, but taught education at Sacramento City College and so raised up disciples of her own. Indeed, my mother was always my greatest role model as to what civic engagement is really all about and what it means to be fully participating as a member of the Jewish community as well. So when I asked her the other day, as her 98th birthday was approaching, how she dealt with overcoming fear and despair, she said, I've never been one to focus on troubles, but rather on what I can do. And I have gratitude for what I do have rather than worry over what I don't. That's my mom. She still gets called up for an aliyah on the holidays at her synagogue. And just a couple of weeks ago, really, just a couple of weeks ago, she gave the keynote for the National Council of Jewish Women's Installation in Sacramento, where she once served, naturally, as president. Above all, my mother's passion for social justice that continues to be her most inspiring legacy. Like the 14th century Sufi poet Hafiz who wrote, everyone is God speaking. Why not be polite and listen to them? My mother treats every human being as if they're the most important person on earth and created with Selim Elohim in God's image. Oh, and by the way, what has my now 98-year-old mother been doing during the pandemic? Taking class to learn Spanish and listening to lectures about notable Jewish women in history. Aren't, aren't we all? Okay, so back to my story and the prescription for dealing with the insecurities we're all living with. As I said, I've been crying a lot this year, not just because of the cancer, but mostly because of the emotional roller coaster that we've all been living on. It's that that lingering feeling of vulnerability that just never seems to go away. That's the story because my story is your story. It's been the most painful yet poignant reminder of my entire life that there is no us and them, that we're all us. It's why Didi poignantly remarked at the start of the pandemic, the coronavirus has leveled the praying field. So here's quickly my five-fold prescription for staying sane in this seemingly insane world. Number one, remember those fabulous inspirational posters that the British government's Ministry of Information created to keep up the morale of the British people during World War II as they faced this aerial bombardment from Nazis? My favorite poster was one printed but actually never released, but a few of them survived and after the war it became the most sought-after poster in Britain. You've probably all seen it. It said simply, keep calm and carry on. If we had services in person this year, that for sure would have been this year's little keychain that I like to pass out. Okay, number two. Remember the words of Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, the ancient Chinese philosopher who wrote the Tao Te Ching. Almost 3,000 years ago, Lao Tzu wisely reminded us, new beginnings are often disguised as painful endings. We know what is ending and that life will never be the same, but we have yet to discover what is born out of the birth pangs of today. Number three, 
One of the sages of the Talmud was named Nahum of Gamzu. Not because Gamzu was where he was from, but because Gamzu in Hebrew means this too, and he used it in many of his most profound sayings. For Nahum of Gamzu, the greatest advice he could give whenever anyone was faced with a difficult challenge or a painful life experience was simply this. Gamzu Yavor. This too will pass. And number four, one of the most profound lessons I ever learned was from a religious school class. I was trying to teach them a quote from the Talmud by the famous sage Shammai, where Shammai says, greet everyone with a cheerful countenance. I quickly learned, however, that they were too young to have ever heard the word countenance. When they repeated back to me what they thought I had said, and only then did I realize that their version was actually much better than Shammai's version, because their version was this, greet everyone with a cheerful count on us. Count on us. What better advice could any of us have than that? That's how we'll get through this together. Be someone that others can count on, because we need each other now more than ever. And finally, my number five. It's Ernest Hemingway. One of America's greatest writers, he admitted that he wrote more than 39 endings for his famous novel, A Farewell to Arms. Not only that, he kept all of those story endings in a notebook his entire life. 87 years after the novel was published, a museum put on display all of those alternate endings of the book. Now, imagine that lesson, because really I think that's the most important lesson of all. You see, every story has the possibility of any number of endings. And most of the endings to our stories, we write. In fact, our lives themselves are not merely a collection of one experience after the next experience after the next experience, one day after the next. It's rather the story that we tell about those experiences. It's our story to tell, and if we choose, literally, we can retell that story totally different the next time. Not just to others, but to ourselves as well. And in so doing, actually change our lives. It's why I truly believe that it's never too late to have a happy childhood. All we need to do is retell our story in a different light, from a different vantage point, with an emphasis on different parts of the story, and we change the very meaning of the story itself and our lives as well. After all, what distinguishes us from all the other creatures on the planet? It's our drive to make meaning out of our lives. Above all else, human beings are meaning makers. That's our genius. That's our real superpower. To take the everyday drips and drabs of our existence, the choices we make every day of what we do and what we say, and weave them into a story that gives purpose and meaning to our lives. 13th century Sufi mystic Jalaluddin Rumi once said, the wound is the place where the light enters you. So take your wounds this year and find your light. After all, our eyes are composed of light parts and dark parts, but we actually only see through the dark parts. And speaking of Hemingway, he became even more famous for his response when challenged to write an entire novel in just six words. This is what he wrote. 
For sale, baby shoes, never worn. When I realized just how powerful six words can be, I asked for people on my Facebook page and through Nextdoor to share their version of a six-word novel or high holiday sermon. Here are just a couple that were sent to me. Janet Leahy wrote, Old doors closed, new doors open. Nancy Ellison Handler, hungry, I forged through my past. Phyllis Palin said, anticipation is not just about catch-up. Started and amazingly it was finished, wrote Neil Selman. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, over too soon, said Lauren Kaplan. And Becky Fish wrote, common courtesy should be more common. The truth is that each of us writes the novel of our own life every single day by what we say, what we do, who we are. There are seven and a half billion people on the earth. And yet, since time began on this planet, there's never been another human being exactly like you. And there never will be. No one else sees the world in exactly the same way you do, feels exactly as you do, thinks exactly as you do, or has your exact talents and skills and abilities. And that's why comparing ourselves to others is so foolish. There literally is no comparison. Yes, perhaps the most remarkable aspect of being human is that as long as you're alive, every single day you have the opportunity to write a different version of your story. A rewrite of the novel of your life. And that's really what Yom Kippur, what this, these days of awe are all about. The chance to rewrite the story of our lives once again for the year ahead. To remember that the quality of our lives is a direct result of the quality of our choices. And those choices are totally up to us, you and me, every single day, as long as we're alive. So what could be more appropriate than ending with the vision that became the central theme of Nobel Prize winning author Gabriel Garcia Marquez in his groundbreaking novel, Love in the Time of Cholera. This is what he wrote. He allowed himself to be swayed by his conviction that human beings are not born once and for all on the day their mothers give birth to them, but that life obliges them over and over again to give birth to themselves. May we all experience the rebirth that we need in the year ahead. That rebirth is to speak our voices. Speak our voices in prayer, in challenge to the world, to stand up for who we are. It's one of the fundamental prayers of this day. We sing, we pray, Shema Kolenu. Hear our voice. Because what each of us needs is to take our voice and make it heard. 